You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. It's not some quaint phrase orthodox people mutter to one another. If the Lord wills should be the way we think first. It should be the way our heart is. If we cannot say that about our lives, if the Lord wills, we have no understanding about our lives at all. And I don't care how much Bible people have read, if they don't get that basic truth from the Bible that God is sovereign and we are not, they need to start all over it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and start rereading it. Because they didn't get it. Pretty common practice in our world today is to have a five or a 10 year plan, but Pastor Tom will show us that we can't even predict what tomorrow has in store for us. It's not that having a plan is bad. In fact, it's wise, but we have to first realize that God is sovereign and he is the one that holds our future in his hands. It's important that we recognize that our day to day is ordered by the Lord and everything in our planning and speech should reflect that understanding. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter four as he continues his message the pride of presumptuous planning. Handouts for doing nothing or nearly doing nothing don't do anybody any good. To sustain people for the long haul, they need to be able to provide for themselves. They need an education. They need a skill to work for themselves. They need to bring home their own paycheck. And then when they have that paycheck, make a contribution also back to society. That's the system that God has ordained even in this fallen world. Alert businessmen know about this. They are able to put their finger up and figure out which way the wind is blowing, economically speaking. They have a nose for business, and then they find their little niche, and they go after it, and they make some money. They often maximize profits. Money is not evil, and making money is not evil. The only thing related to money we're told that is evil is the love of money, right? The love of money. So James is not correcting businessmen. He's not frowning on hard work. However, James is not so pleased with these businessmen and their self-assurance. Their self-assurance. Rather than joining them in all the backslapping they must have been doing or their mug clanging, their outbursts of laughter, this annoying pastor, talking about James, not me, <laughs> suddenly puts an end to all of their premature celebrations. He interrupts their gleeful planning session with that rousing address in verse 13. Come now. That's a discordant note. Come now, you who say these things. Now, when you read the Bible, especially when you're reading it out loud, you need to recognize when there's a little bit of emotion that's inside the text. And here's where you'll have it. And you should read it that way when it has emotion. These are words of sharp disapproval. Uh, These are a direct challenge to a blind spot that they collectively had. This address is meant to shake these merchants from their self-confidence and prepare them for some rethinking. That's what pastors are supposed to do. After all, they are there often to disagree with you and your plans. They're there to get you to look at your life and your home and your situation and your work a little bit differently give you a different perspective, inject something maybe that you haven't been thinking about. And by now, I'm confident that you all know that James was not shy at all about making corrections. He's been doing it through the whole letter. True, we are not supposed to judge our brothers wrongly. We're not supposed to tear them down, even with the use of truth. But that doesn't mean we don't correct them when all the facts are known. Then the correction is given with kindness and it's beneficial. 
I wonder really, as they were reading this, I wonder what kind of reaction these, these merchants would have had when this was first read, maybe as they were listening in the synagogue, and they, they listened to these words as the reader read them. Would they have received this correction right away? I doubt it. Receiving correction is hard sometimes. We always search for what we did that's right, not what we did that was wrong, to try to reassure ourselves. Would they have said, you know what, we deserve this rebuke? Proverbs 17.10 says, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. You can keep hitting a fool and hitting a fool and he doesn't learn anything. But a man of understanding gets corrected even a little bit and he, he receives that and he benefits from it. I think they might have struggled with this correction at first. That's just my guess. Maybe they were thinking, what is this fellow so bent out of shape for? What are we doing that's so bad and wrong? What is wrong with hard work, making a profit, supporting our families? Why doesn't he pick on some other profession? Why is he putting ours in the text and correcting us as businessmen? Well, rest assured, James was about to tell them what was wrong, and he spared no words at all. And that leads us to the second stage of their humbling, and that is the presumption is revealed. Look again at verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. There it is. You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. See the sharp contrast? He's drawing a sharp contrast. The merchants said, we're going to travel, we're going to do business, we're going to spend a year, we're going to make profits. Those are the same ones who don't even know what their life will be like tomorrow. Picture that, because that's where all the presumption is. That's where the problem is in this text. That's really the bullseye that he wants us to learn, not just as businessmen, but just as Christians. The ones who are confidently talking about the future are the same ones who don't know anything at all about the future. That's a problem. That's presumption. To talk the way they were talking was a boast. Now, we mentioned in the last section that the, one of the things that people are most proud about are their opinions, particularly their opinions of other people. Well, another one high on the list is our ability to uh, make plans come true. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I can't wait for this to happen because then I'm going to get to do dot, dot, dot. People talk all the time about things they're going to do in the future. Next year, I'm going to do such and such. You're going to see. I can't wait till next month. I'm going to start such and such. All the time. People talk about all kinds of things. But what control do they really have? Big talk, little to back up the talk. Would you agree? Proverbs 27.1, do not boast about tomorrow. Why not? Why not? For you do not know what a day may bring forth. James can't stomach this subtle arrogance. He abruptly tells them that they're presuming about things in the future, a future they know precious little about. Do they know what their health will be like this year? No. Can they be sure that robbers will not take advantage of them on the road? Not exactly. Do they know for a fact that the governing officials won't change the laws midstream and the whole thing will be shot to pieces? Do they know what their competition is up to? Maybe not. Can they even tell what the weather will be like next month? You know, percentages about how things usually go in the future doesn't really mean anything because there's all kinds of things that are going to happen in our future that you and I sitting here right now would say, that's very unlikely. That's just very unlikely. It's not just businessmen. Even many 
many Christians are still touting confidently what they will do. I will do this. I will do that. Hmm. Get asked once in a while, Pastor, what's your five and ten year plan? I don't know what my five-day plan is. The only one who gets to say, I will do this and I will do that is... See, that's always the right answer in church and Sunday school. (laughs) It is, or Christ. Want a sample? The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. Time of the flood. Did he do what he said he would do? Yes, he did. Compare that to men. Delilah said... The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he woke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Or Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice, 1 Samuel 18. So man's I wills aren't quite as impressive as God's, you know? Not only do these businessmen not know the future, they also should have taken into consideration just the brevity of life itself. Look at the last part of verse 14. You are just a vapor. Now, there are a lot of verses that speak to the um, self-image of the believer. This is one of those. This is one of those. Who are you? What's your view of yourself? I am just a vapor. Hmm. That gets you humble, doesn't it? You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Ever been at a funeral of a loved one? I'm sure most of you have. You look at the body, you look at the casket, you look at the gravestone, and it should just hit you between the eyes. Life is short. I mean, it's really short. Billy Graham was asked that about 10 years ago. So I remember he was in an interview. He said, has anything about life surprised you? And he said, how short it was. How short it was. It goes by fast. A water vapor, of course, is like an early morning mist, a fog that's quickly burned away by the morning sun. Kind of interesting, I was preaching on this, and I'm driving in 6.30 this morning, and there was a little mist over a little low area, you know, where a pond was. And I was like, that's going to be gone in an hour or two. I know that because I'm preaching on that this morning. <laughs> that's human life. It's here, it's gone, it's a fleeting vapor. Loved ones are here, and then loved ones are gone. By the way, we call them loved ones Love them before they're gone. Love them before they're gone, okay? Last couple of years, I looked up famous people come and go. You all remember listening to Yogi Berra? He's gone now, right? Leonard Nimoy, Spock, he's gone. Now he knows that there's, you know, he knows the truth now. (laughs) Frank Gifford, you know, the football announcer. Merle Haggard. Country music, Nancy Reagan, and many others. They're here, they're on the news, then they're gone. Dr. Hebert, in his superb commentary on James, captures James's outrage here. How foolish, therefore, to ignore the unchanging God and then proudly plan for their life that is as fleeting as a wisp of vapor. This is what we forget. This is what I forget. This is something we go on like, you know, I'm just going to get in my car and I'm going to go. And then someone has an accident and they're gone. Well, I'm just going to wake up the next morning and you wake up the next morning and you have cancer or whatever it is. We just think everything's just going to fit the way we perceive the future to be. That presumption is pride. I dug up an older poem 
guy named Francis Quarles, a Protestant poet, 1592 is when he was born. It's called The Shortness of Life. It goes like this. And what's a life? A weary pilgrimage whose glory in one day doth fill the stage with childhood, manhood, and decrepit age. And what's a life? The flourishing array of the proud summer meadow which today wears her green plush and is tomorrow hay. Behold these lilies which thy hands have made, fair copies of my life and open laid, to view how soon they droop, how soon they fade. That's life. So presuming on tomorrow is pride. Such human presumption is characteristic of humanistic secular life. That glories in man's abilities, man's education, magnifies the education of man. We have reached the moon and landed on the moon. We have now reached Mars. We're going to go beyond. Young people are told all the time in their educational institutions, you can do anything you want if you set your mind to it and get a good education. With education and a positive self-image, you can accomplish anything. I wonder what they have to say to the millions and millions of people in poverty who never had a chance to do any of the things that they boasted they would have a chance to do. What kind of advice would they have for them? Because millions never get to do the things they boast of. What a cruel joke to say, you can do anything. How you set up a person for tremendous failure. No, you can't do anything you want to do. That's reality. That's not make-believe. That's the way it is. That's not a storybook. That's reality. God can do great things with you in your life as you yield to Him, but it'll be Him accomplishing it, not you. Haughty thinking about one's own abilities and education and charm and all the rest of that has no place at all in the Christian's life. Where is the humility that's supposed to characterize us before God, before a God of whom we sung? We of all people on the earth should know that sovereignty alone belongs to the Lord. He alone knows the future. He alone determines the future. He alone will mold your life to fit in His future. Not you, not me. Every once in a while, God allows someone who's a lot younger, maybe even a child, to die among us, just to remind us of that very fact. Nothing about tomorrow is sure, not even for young people, nothing. The only thing that is sure is what God has pronounced prophetically. That's it. So having kind of exposed this presumption, reigned on their parade of, con of confidence, James kind of invites these guys maybe back to the table to sit down with him around that table, push the map aside a little bit, and to receive some instruction about how they should have been thinking all along. That brings us to the third stage, the third stage. Proper thinking is supplied. Look at verse 15. Proper thinking is supplied. Instead, James writes, you ought to say... If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So much taught in so few words right here in this verse. I mean, we could make a whole series just on that statement. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. James is now showing them. He's kind of taking words and putting them in their mouth and hoping it'll back up into their brain and into their mind so they'll think this way and speak this way because the way they're speaking doesn't reflect proper thinking. 
these businessmen were saying, we will do this or do that. And he says, no, that's not the way wisdom talks. Wisdom talks this way. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. And there's a world of difference between those two phrases, people. If the Lord wills. It's not a little religious cliche we're supposed to say to one another to make sure everybody knows that our doctrine is correct, that our maturity is real. It's not some quaint phrase orthodox people mutter to one another. If the Lord wills should be the way we think first. It should be the way our heart is. If we cannot say that about our lives, if the Lord wills, we have no understanding about our lives at all. And I don't care how much Bible people have read, if they don't get that basic truth from the Bible that God is sovereign and we are not, they need to start all over it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and start rereading it. Because they didn't get it. James is saying if your thinking about life is right and is humble, it's going to guide your vocabulary. If your theology is clear in your heads, then the words that come out of your mouth will be wise. What we say when we're speaking genuinely is an expression of what we believe in our hearts. So we need to express our words more carefully. Now, I have to say, let's not be too quick to judge these Jewish merchants. Do we not always, or at various times, express things that come out of our mouths that are kind of inconsistent with the Christian faith, inconsistent with the Bible? I feel lucky today. Maybe I'll win the lottery. Or if you're not that grandiose in your plans, maybe I'll win at McDonald's Monopoly. I sure hope my family stays healthy this year. Knock on wood. I wonder what Mother Nature has in store for us this spring. That's the way the fools talk. Sometimes we need corrections to the way we speak. The words that we say should reflect our belief in the sovereignty of God. And I believe in the sovereignty of God so much that I know that if I brag about beating my wife in a game and I blow on the dice, I am sure to lose that game. I just set myself up for losing. I don't care what game it is. James says there are two things we must leave up to the sovereign will of God. Write these two things down. There are two things we must leave up to the sovereign will of God. Two important things we cannot make certain plans about. Okay? We have no control over these two things. Number one, our lives. Number two, what we will do in the future. And by the way, that covers everything. If you didn't notice. If the Lord wills, we will live. If you don't live, you're not going to be doing anything. <laughs> not in this world. And do this or do that. That's everything, folks. Both the length of our lives and what we'll be able to do in the future, this or that, are all not in the hands of Allstate. <laughs> the hands of God. Not in the hands of our brokers. Not in the hands of our doctors. Not in the hands of the surgeons as much as we appreciate them. Not in the hands of government. They are in the hands of Almighty God. Well, what can we plan if we can't plan our lives or the future? Isn't that the purpose of planning? Yes, it is. And James is not saying that we cannot plan. He's just saying that we must plan with an attitude of awareness 
of the sovereignty of God, a prayer life and words that reflect that, and a flexibility that is ready to turn in any direction he takes us. We have to understand that our plans are not etched in stone. If the Lord doesn't want them, they ain't going to happen. Even when you have good plans, that's right. Even when you've prayed about your plans, mm, even when you have a good feeling about your plans, even when you say, but I was led by the Spirit, you never know for sure. And you must never speak like you know for sure. His point is that we should have the proper attitude of the sovereignty of God in our hearts. What is the sovereignty of God? Christians agree that God is sovereign. They don't always define it the same way. They don't seem to always know what it means. You could say it simply like this. It means God is in control of everything, and we are not. That would be simple. A word definition is only so effective, so I'm going to draw a mind picture for you about the sovereignty of God instead. Think of those Jewish businessmen again, hovering over their map. There they are with their plans. They've got their plan. They've got some nice plan. They've got some thoughtful plans. They're planning. Oh, yeah, they're doing some plans. Now picture God way up in the heavens above them, and he's got a planning table too. And he's got stuff stretched out on his table, and he's making his plan. Notice that the plans of the businessmen down on earth and the plans of God up in heaven do not agree. The men have plans for a year of business, a year of profit. God has plans for a terrific, untimely storm to overtake their boat. God has them washed ashore in an unfamiliar location where they have the opportunity to bring, since supposedly these are believers in Jesus Christ, to bring the gospel to some out-of-the-way Jewish community that Paul and the other apostles haven't hit yet and bring them the gospel of Jesus Christ washed ashore right there. And the people there are going to be so grateful they've heard the gospel of the Messiah of Israel that they're going to take up a collection and send these men back home safely. They'll have to go over the land. The boat was wrecked. And through that different route back home, overland, taking longer, one night where they spent, let's say, in an inn, they find and meet another man who's got a different business venture for them, a new business adventure. Not quite as lucrative as the one that they had before in the short run, but it sure has promised that it could build for the long run and be good for their children. Being in such a desperate situation, they accept the business venture. And who knows, years from now, maybe God used the new contact, used the new business to guide even one of their children or their grandchildren in the way that they should go because God would have his hand on one of them and lead them into a great Christian mission. God has so many different ways that he could work. Very different plans, wouldn't you say, between those two, God and the men down below? Now, the simple question about the sovereignty of God is this. God's plans say that. The men's plans say what they wanted to say, whose plans are going to win? God's plans. That's the sovereignty of God. Whatever God writes down in his plans above is sure to happen. Whatever we write down in our plan book, eh, it's kind of iffy. Proverbs 19.21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. The old saying, where there is a will, 
There is a way is only true with God and His will. When men say these words, it's an unrealistic, inflated boast. Our belief in the sovereignty of God should humble us and prepare us for whatever He has for us in the future. The longer you live following God, the more you'll recognize the truth of Pastor Tom's message today. Looking back, you'll see God's faithfulness to bring about His good plan. When we follow Him, we can see His provision and guidance and comfort. And when we turn to the side, we can see the consequences of following our own way. We'll also find that in those times of our waywardness, God is never too far that we can't come back to Him. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. If you've been following along, it's pretty clear that James is poking at a root issue of pride in the lives of his readers. Next time, we'll not only hear how God is against the proud, but how he extends his grace to the humble. Humility isn't about being lowly, but it's knowing the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. What happens when those things are in proper perspective is a beautiful thing. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting HopeBibleChurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope. Discover Hope.